you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Samuel 9. We're going to be in a rather lengthy passage of Scripture this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 through 1 Samuel 10, uh, verse 16. And we're going to continue this uh, study of the book of Samuel and looking at how does God bring his king out of this conflict. In a, in a day when the judges ruled, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How is Yahweh going to bring his king out of that? And what we're going to see here in this portion of Scripture, that Yahweh is directing the steps of his servants and then equipping them to work out this plan of redemption and glory. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we'll get to work looking at Yahweh's uh, direction and his equipping. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, starting in 1 Samuel 9, chapter 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekaroth, son of Apphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name, whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and rise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. They passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What, what do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and they were entering. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall, sh- he sh- he s- he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people. Because of their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. 
As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And then they came down from the high place in a city, and a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called up to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here, for, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me this day, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there further up and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And there they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, and you shall accept from their hand. And then you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, and there is a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But what about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken? He did not tell him anything. The grass 
withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a story. That which is lost is found, and that which has been promised is being developed. Lord, you prepared your people for a king in this time when there were no kings and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Lord, here is your man anointed with oil and your very spirit to do what you have directed him to do. Father, as we read this, may we know that you are indeed directing even our steps and equipping us not just with oil of anointing, but that you have anointed us with your very spirit if we belong to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see that this story is not about donkeys being lost and being found, but it is about that your sovereign hand is over all things. That, Lord, you are over all of history that is rolling forward until your telos, to your appointed end. And that is the renewal of all things when your Son comes back and makes all things new. So, Father, help us in the meantime to sit in the tension, sit in the narrative as it unfolds, to know that you are working and equipping us even for life in this world now. Father, we know that that we can only understand these words and only hear these words as your words through the power of your Spirit. So that we would ask this morning, Lord, that you would anoint the preaching and reading of this word with a generous measure of your Spirit, that it would go out and accomplish all that you have prepared it to do. For, Lord, we know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing joint and bone and marrow. Lord, we ask that we would be pierced this morning, that we would be convinced of your righteousness, convicted of our sin, and confirmed in the fact that you love us so much that you sent your Son to die for us, that we might be made new. We love you, Jesus, so much, and we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. About 12 years ago, 14 years ago actually, 14 years ago, um, it was the spring of 2010. Uh, Lindsay and I were seniors in college. We'd been dating for about six months or so, and we got into our first fight got into our first disagreement. And what happened was um, there was a particular television show that I really enjoyed, and I'd enjoyed for a long time, the American version of The Office. And I'd been watching The Office from season one with a group of friends, and I'd gotten very invested in the storyline and the characters and the plot development, and I thought it was the greatest show I had ever seen up to that point. I don't think season seven or eight had come out yet, but still, at that point, I was convinced it was one of the greatest shows ever. And Lindsay and I had been dating for a while, and I had convinced her to watch a few other TV shows with me, things that she would never watch on her own, and finally I said, I would like to watch The Office with you, would you watch this with me? And she hated it. And not only did she hate it, but she said, this is stupid. And when she said that something that I loved was stupid, I said to her, when you say that something that I love is stupid, it's like you're calling me stupid. And thus we had our first argument. You see, Lindsay had never watched The Office before. It is not something that her and her friends had done. And so the first time she watched these characters doing ridiculous things, saying ridiculous things, it was not funny to her. It was cringy and and off-putting. And so she didn't have the same perspective because she didn't have the whole kind of relational engagement that I had had with my friends. And she didn't have a picture of this whole narrative. She had just kind of popped in in the middle and did not understand what was going on. And when she did not understand it, she did not appreciate it. And she did not like it. It is so immediately available to us in our lives to not look at a big picture, 
to be so consumed with the immediate and the, and, the, and the right in front of our face. We are terrorized by the immediate. And when we don't step back and look at our lives with a bigger picture, we can become disillusioned and, and bitter and angry. But what God does in his word and by his spirit is that he gives us this massive picture of how he is working throughout the ages, throughout the centuries to redeem a people for himself. And when we look at the book of Samuel, we are getting a small glimpse of that. But what we're doing is we're trying to get this big covenantal picture of how our God is working to bring about his king for his people at this time in history. God, in his word, is giving us a big picture of how he is directing the steps of his servants and equipping them to bring about this plan of redemption and glory. So let's look, first of all, at Yahweh's direction. This section uh, begins with the once and future king, the selection of Saul uh, to be king. And and what we learn here in this narrative portion is that Saul looks like a king but in many ways is, is not going to act like one. And so what it, what it looks like on the surface is not what really is kind of what it truly is uh, underneath uh, there. And so what the author of Samuel is doing, what he wants us to do kind of in a narrative sense, is he wants to draw your attention and draw a parallel between Saul and other judges that had had previously served Yahweh for Israel. In particular, the the narrative is is really parallel with that of Samson. So Samson and Saul are both equipped by God. They're both appointed by God to do a certain work. The Spirit of God rushes upon both of them. They are both physically impressive and imposing characters, but they're rather weak when it comes to their morals and their spiritual. They're both tasked with delivering Israel from the Philistines and they both end up dying kind of inglorious, ignomious deaths at the hands of the Philistines. So what the, the book of Samuel is doing is that it's drawing this kind of parallel between one of the most prominent judges and the first ever king as Israel's moving in this transition period from judges to monarchy. Now I'm going to pause there really quick and I have a very important question for the kids in the congregation. Kids, what is one of your favorite superheroes? Favorite superheroes, kids? Spider-Man. Spider-Man? Great choice. Other kids, what do you, what do you got? Kids, who's your favorite superhero? Calvin. Batman, okay, very cool. Yeah, Aaron, favorite superhero? Batman, all right. Other, anybody else? You got a favorite superhero? College kids, you got a favorite one? Batman? Thor? Thor? Okay, all right, these are some good options. Now, what did you say, Crumb? What did you say? Thor? Yeah. Now, all what you have all said, both young children and older children alike, what you have all said is that you have all commented on these superheroes that, that all have a generally physically impressive uh, physique. They're physically imposing. Tom Holland as Spider-Man, notwithstanding. Um, Andrew Garfield also. But generally speaking, these superheroes are always kind of portrayed as these physically impressive, kind of imposing characters. And there's a sense in which we kind of, as a culture, draw a connection between physical size and power and ability. It is no different in the time of Israel. People don't really change. And so Saul is described twice in these first three verses as this big, physically impressive, a head taller than anybody, and he's good looking to boot. This is a man that looks like a king. 
He comes from a prominent, wealthy family, and, and he looks great. Now, this is eventually going to sharply contrast with the, the, the better king, the greatest king, David, when God really puts an emphasis on, on David's inner spiritual life. In fact, we're going to eventually get to 1 Samuel 17, when the small, puny David goes up against massive, physically imposing Goliath, and because the Lord is on his side, David wins. And so Saul in many ways, looks like the hero that Israel needed. But he's not the hero that Israel deserved. And so uh, the, narrator, the, the narrative is going to sharply contrast with, with Samuel, or with David eventually. And what this physically imposing, king-looking person does, he gets sent on an errand with the servant. The donkeys of his dad, Kish, are lost. And so Kish says to Saul, hey, go take one of the servants and go find the donkeys. And so they go out. When you're wealthy, you've got to protect that property. You've got to protect your, your personal assets. And they go out looking for donkeys in verse 4 and 5. And what you would think on the face of this, you would think that the owner of the property would be the one motivated to find the property. You would think that the owner and not the hired hand would be the one kind of setting the pace. But what we see as the narrative unfolds is that Saul eventually gets disinterested. And, and it's kind of hard. You don't want to, like, psychologize these, these, these characters, and you don't want to give them motive necessarily. But you can clearly see that Saul's a little bit more motivated to go back home. He says to the servant, oh, we, we've been through all these places. We can't find them. Let's go home, lest my father worries about us and not the donkeys. And the servant, not the one who is going to be king, says, no, let's keep going. There's a man of God here, and maybe he'll tell us what all we need to know. And so not only does Saul kind of act more like the hired hand and is more inclined to go home, he doesn't even know, nor is he aware of, the fact that this great man of God is in their region. And so the picture that the narrative is painting here is that Saul is, while he looks physically impressive, spiritually he's almost as blind as Eli was at the beginning of this narrative, and he's not as nearly as strong as a leader as Samuel has been. The servant is the one taking initiative, and even to the point where, where Saul says, oh, we if we want to go to this man of God, we ate all the bread, all the snacks are gone. What are we going to give him? And yet again, the servant, the one who Saul should be in charge of, is the one solving the problem. The one saying, I have a shekel here. We can give this to the man of God. We can go and we can inquire of him. So the picture that Saul is being painted, of Saul that is being painted, is one of physical impressiveness, but not real spiritual impressiveness and not real leadership impressiveness. So even though Saul doesn't know what's going on, Yahweh is still at work. They go up to the city, and it just so happens that they meet some women that just so happen to tell them that the seer is there, and they just so happen to have a sacrifice at the high place, and it just so happens that the day before that Yahweh has told Samuel, Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'm sending you a man from the tribe of Benjamin, and you're going to anoint him to be prince over my people. Brothers and sisters, this is not about a search for donkeys. This is about God directing the steps of his servants to bring his plan about to fruition. Yahweh is directing these things. He is sending Saul out. Kish did not send him out. Yahweh sent Saul out, not to find donkeys, but to be found by Samuel, that he might be anointed king over Israel. 
In fact, one, one scholar points out that in verse 15, where, where, where Yahweh tells uh, Samuel what's going on, the, the word there for tell is like, this is word for lifting a veil. So it's almost like Yahweh is lifting this veil, kind of brushing like a tunic aside so that Samuel can hear and really know what's going on behind the scenes. Yahweh is at work and he wants his servant to know that I am working even when it doesn't look like it on the surface. And so for you and for I... We desperately need this reminder. We desperately need the Spirit of God to lift the veil, as it were, and remind us that even when it doesn't look like Yahweh is working, your God is directing everything about your life and all of your steps and exactly what is going on today. Now, our fallen nature... Our sin nature that continually dwells in us is going to continually rip our eyes to the uh, to the the temporary, to the created, to the immediate. A lot of you are parents. You might get trapped in this in this 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 whirlpool of oh my gosh, I have to cook dinner again. I have to clean up this mess again. I have to discipline my kids again. Maybe you're a student you get trapped in this vortex of, oh my gosh, I have more homework. I have another reading assignment. I have to submit something else on Blackboard. I have to take another test. I have to do another assignment. I have to write another paper. I have to go another internship. Maybe you're at your work and you're just trapped in this vortex of, oh, I have to do payroll again or I have to, I have to fire somebody again or I have to make this decision. We get so terrorized by the immediate. And all of that stuff is good. You have to do all of that stuff. You should do all of that stuff. But when that is the sole focus of your life, it becomes this trap of drudgery and depression almost where you get bitter and disillusioned. Is this all that there is? Is it just another day of changing diapers and disciplining and making lunch and going to class and listening to a lecture and doing my commute and whatever? Is this all that there is? And if you don't have this bigger picture, understanding that in all of those moments, you are there doing that thing because your God has directed your steps to that place at that time for a particular purpose. If you don't have that bigger, wider, eternal perspective of what's going on, you are going to be disillusioned and bitter, and you're probably going to get angry. And so God, in His kindness, lifts the veil, as it were, in His Word and by His Spirit, to say, no, 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 no. Even when you're in the midst of all that drudgery, even when you're in the midst of that thing that you have to do day in, day out, and you're trapped in a vortex, no, 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 your God has covenanted with you and he is working even when it doesn't look like it and especially when it doesn't feel like it. After we take communion, we're going to sing Psalm 23. We're going to sing about how goodness and mercy will follow me even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff are with me. Brothers and sisters, you need to know, we need to know that as we read this portion of scripture, that the sheep experience the fruit of the shepherd's faithfulness, regardless of whether or not they can see it. The sheep experience the fruit of the shepherd's faithfulness even when you can't see it. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and that veil is there and you're just being assaulted day in, day out with the realities of living in a fallen world and it feels like, has God forgotten about me? No, your God is faithful and he's good and he's directing even your steps at this moment to his own purpose, for his own glory, and for your good. So be of good 
encourage Christian brothers and sisters. The universe is not a random, cold, impersonal place. It is a highly personal, covenanted place where your God has entered into time, space, history and said, I'm here and I'm working and I'm for you. This is good news for us. But it's not that he's there pulling the strings and acting like a cosmic puppet master. No, no, no. He has entered into this and he has personally entered into time, space, history through his son, Jesus. And he is going to equip those for those whom he directs for his own service, for his own purpose, for his own glory. So let's look now at Yahweh's equipping. We see here, we learn from the, from the young women that Saul and the servant meet that the, the priest, that the man of God is going up to prepare a feast and prepare a sacrifice uh, that is appointed for the anointed one. And we learn that as they meet Samuel and they go to this sacrifice, there is a piece of meat, a specific piece of the sacrifice that Samuel has set aside. And it's actually the portion that belongs to the priest. Samuel brings, says to the cook, bring the portion set aside. And it was the leg of the animal that had been slaughtered. And that was normally the portion that belonged to the priest. And so there's a very clear picture that the author of Samuel is making is that there is something different and special about Saul. This was set aside for you because you, Saul, have been set aside for a purpose and for a work. You have been prepared for something. And this is a part of that preparation Part of equipping somebody to do a job, you would know, we should all know this if we have children or if you work around people. If somebody doesn't know they're being asked to do something, they can't do it. And so God in his kindness is preparing Saul for this task at hand. And so Saul and his servant eat with these people. They celebrate and after the meal is over, they have to take a rest. They, they've imbibed a lot of food and drink and it's time to sleep on the cool of the roof and so Samuel not only prepares this meat for them but he has a place set aside for them to rest and in the morning he sends his servant away I've got something to tell you Saul for your ears only again God is preparing to do this work and Yahweh's man Samuel puts the servant Saul in a place that he can be that only he can be to equip him for this work and so the servant goes ahead And Saul's about to hear something important. Now I'm going to pause here. Kids, another very important question for you. I think I've asked this before, but it's a good time to ask again. Tell me about a special toy that you have or a special place that you have in your house. What's a special? Anna, go ahead. Your your giant, giant teddy bear chocolate. All right, what about you, Aaron? Your monster? All right, very cool. Uh, I, oh, Amelia. Your stuffed bunny you've had since you're born. Uh, Graham. You're always with the Legos in this church. I love it. All right, last one. Um, uh, Lydia. Your stuffed bunny. You got a stuffed bunny too? Now, let me ask you this, kids. Do you just let anybody play with these things? No, you kind of guard them, right? You kind of set them off to the side. Those are special, and you know those are special, and your siblings also know that that's very special and for you only. In the same way, we're about to see in this story that God is taking Saul, and he's going to set him aside, and he's going to say, you are about to do something and be something special. That's what it means to be anointed. And so Samuel sends the servant away, and he anoints the head of Saul with oil, and he kissed him. And he said, has not Yahweh appointed you to be prince over his people? 
Has not Yahweh set you aside for a specific and purposeful task to restrain, to lead, to rule over his people, and to defend them and deliver them from the Philistines? Yahweh has a special task for you. And so Samuel is preparing Saul for this, and then he anoints him and sets him aside and said, this is the task that God has for you. You are special. You are anointed with oil. You have, you have been prepared for this purpose, to be prince over Yahweh's people. Not king, because Yahweh alone is king. And so Saul is going to be anointed prince over the people. And not only does Saul receive this promise, not only does he receive the anointing with the oil and the kiss and the promise that you are going to be appointed prince over the people, but he also gets signs, confirmation signs that this is going to happen. You're going to meet a few men, and they're going to tell you about the donkeys that have been found. They're going to tell you that your dad's worried about you now. And then you're going to go a little further along, and you're going to meet some other men. They're going to have bread, and they're going to have goats, and they're going to be playing instruments, and they're going to be prophesying. And you're going to prophesy with them because of the Spirit of the Lord. When these things happen, you're going to know for sure and certain that it's not just my words of Yahweh that are with you, but Yahweh himself is with you. Because it doesn't matter if you make a promise if it doesn't follow through. Promises only matter insofar that they are followed through upon. And Samuel is saying, Yahweh is going to follow through. And so we see the prophetic fulfillment in verse 9. Saul left, and the Lord does this beautiful miraculous almost thing. The same thing with uh, Samson back in the book of Judges. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and Saul receives a new heart. Now, the one that was not a strong leader, that wanted to go home and abandon his task, is now led to do what all his hand finds to do for the glory of God. Now the one who is blind and unaware of spiritual truths and spiritual realities and spiritual people, this one has been given a new heart and goes and prophesies with the prophets. And so when all this comes to pass, just as the Lord promised, He is showing that I am with you, I am for you, and I am empowering you to do just what I've prepared you to do. Think about that for a second. You are empowered to do, equipped to do, just what you have been prepared to do and set aside to do. The Lord is with His people even when it doesn't look like, and He makes good on His promises. Now, A quick theological aside, this does not mean that Saul was necessarily regenerate. What it means is that he was equipped with a new heart for a purpose. To be this first transition king going from the time of the judges to the monarchy. And so Saul is being equipped for a particular purpose. That does not necessarily mean that he was regenerate, but he is going to accomplish what Yahweh's task is. And so he begins to prophesy with the prophets. And it's fair to say this was unusual behavior for somebody who is not known for his spiritual vibrancy. He's prophesying with these people going up to the high place. And people are are, are witnessing this and they're going, who is his father? Isn't this the son of Kish? Isn't, isn't this Kish's boy from the tribe of Benjamin? Like, what is he? Is he also among the prophets? And so, this, as this narrative is unfolding, even as God is doing the very thing that God promised that he would do, people watch it and they don't understand. So, it is not axiomatic, brothers and sisters, that we automatically and assuredly get what God is doing. 
And so this saying became a, a proverb among the people, is Saul among the prophets. Whenever you see something that's incongruous, these two things don't belong together. But what we need to understand and the implication that we have as God's people right now is that our God takes people who don't look like they'd be useful and uses them for his own purpose and glory. And let's personalize that. You, who are filled with God's Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, you are, you are covenant, God has covenanted with you, and, and you have been regenerated, you have a new heart, a new mind, the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you absolutely and assuredly have a role to play in the kingdom of God. It is so easy when you're in that kind of vortex spiral of going, woe is me, is this all there is? You know, my life is meaningless. It is so easy to think, I am not good enough to do anything for God's kingdom. I have too much sin. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough experience. I haven't read the right books. I haven't listened to the right podcasts. I haven't done the right things. Brother and sister, if you are a believer in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus, you have absolutely an essential role in the kingdom of God. There is a place for you to serve. The New Testament gives us this beautiful picture of the church as a body. There's a foot, there's a hand, there's ears, there's eyes, there's a nose. There's a job for everybody in the kingdom of God. Nobody is without purpose. Nobody is, un, is not useful. Everybody is useful. And even, even Paul says in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians, Consider yourself, brothers and sisters, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble birth. Not many of you are strong. But God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God chose what is despicable and despised to to bring the glory that they aren't. Lord, the Lord uses all kinds of people. And so I want you to be of good courage that if you are a believer, you have been equipped to serve in some way, shape, or form. And not everybody does the same thing. Not all of us can play music like Terry. Not all of us uh, can do budgets like Sam. Not all of us can do the children's ministry like these wonderful women do and and take care of our kids. Not all of us can do those things. But all of us have something to offer the kingdom of God. And one of the things that I want to encourage you as a church, one of the takeaways that I want you to to go away from here is, is I want you to encourage each other. You have gifts. Use them. And when you see your brothers and sisters using their gifts affirm them, say thank you, acknowledge that they're doing it. Not because that we, we need to just butter each other up, but because it is glorifying to God when you see John Tittle praying here. When, when you see Ed Baker leading the new members class. When you see Brian Riedel just quietly shepherding away and, and setting up the sound. When you see Gary every week coming at 8.30 to help set all this up. You have men and women in this body that it would be glorifying to God if you say to them, I see what you're doing and I appreciate you for leveraging your gifts for the glory of the kingdom. That is a good and God-honoring thing to do. And in turn, we as a church need to encourage those who feel weak and who feel incapable to know that, no, you are not weak. And it's not because you are, are, are powerful and strong on your own. It's because God has equipped you and has prepared a task for you even now because Yahweh has directed your steps here to this church at this time. And so all of us have a role to play. But it's also worthwhile to acknowledge that who you are and what you're doing now is not yet who you will be because your story is still unfolding as it were because the narrative of God is still unfolding as it were and we cannot know the fullness of it yet. 
I will fully admit that 14 years ago, Lindsay and I got in that fight about The Office, and she did not watch it with me. Next week, we're going to celebrate our 12-year anniversary, and I, we're almost done with Season 9 of The Office. We have watched through all of it, uh, starting in about, I think, or right before the fall, we started watching from Season 1, and um, she is belly laughing every week, and it is this glorious thing to share with her, um, because when you get this picture of the bigger picture and you have a covenantal relational connection to something, you can actually appreciate it and engage it. Ecclesiastes 3 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity in men's hearts so they can't find out what he's doing. Our God is so kind that he brings us along slowly and his plan develops in a way that we can walk with him and he can walk with us in its time. Saul goes to the high place and he's met by his uncle. Tell me about the matter of the donkeys. And Saul told him all about the donkeys. They were found, but he did not say anything about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken. He did not say anything. We cannot fully understand what God is doing without this covenantal relational element that God is revealing to us in his time in which he has made beautiful. We need to understand that this plan is still unfolding and that we are still a part of it. And we can look forward to that telos, to that end when it's all going to come to fruition. But until that day, we have to be patient and we need to be encouraged with the fact that God is directing and equipping his people to do exactly what he needs. But there's been so much focus and talk on the directing and the equipping of you, the saints. We need to understand that Yahweh is with us in this in a very personal and covenantal way and that centuries ago he sent not a servant but his own son to seek and to save what was lost to to be on a mission from God not about finding the donkeys but about finding you and me and rescuing his people and he came in the form of a servant he was not much to look at so that when he came people said can anything good come from Nazareth Isn't this Joseph's son, Mary's son, the carpenter's son? Who is he? Why is he saying what he's saying? And then he goes through all that he went through, fully submitted to the plan of God, fully equipped by the Spirit, fully anointed by the Spirit, fully directed by God, and he's directed to the cross where his death covers a multitude of our sins, where he bears the curse of all our law-breaking. And when he died and breathed his last, that Roman centurion said, not can anything good come from Nazareth. Is not this Joseph and Mary's son, the carpenter? Truly, he says, this is the Son of God, the true King of Israel, anointed not just with oil, but with the water and the blood, not just set aside to deliver his people from the Philistines, but to deliver his people from the dominion of darkness, from their own sin. And this one was crucified and was resurrected and sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning all things right now, directing all your steps, directing all your plans, directing all your paths. And this one is with you, interceding with you by his spirit, even with groans too deep for words. So brothers and sisters, when you doubt the goodness and the presence of God, look no further than the cross where our God said, you are worth dying for. And by the power of my spirit, you will live as my son lives even to this day. 
You and I need to be reminded that truly this is the Son of God and those who look to Him are given new hearts and are filled with His Spirit and He will lead us into all truth until He comes back and makes all things new. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's a beautiful word, enough. And you're enough for us. Your son is enough. His life, death, and resurrection is truly what we need to be whole, to be forgiven, to be ransomed and restored and redeemed from the fall. Father, help us to know that when we doubt your goodness, we can look to the cross and see the weight of our sin completely borne away. As the goat sent away from the camp on the Day of Atonement, you have taken all of our sin away. As far as the east is from the west, you have so removed our iniquity from us. Because all of the weight of your wrath is poured out upon your son, Jesus, our King. And that his anointing was indeed at his baptism, but he was also on the cross pouring out his lifeblood for us that we might be anointed not just with oil but with his blood and with his spirit that we might walk in the newness of life. So Father, help us to know that you are with us, that your spirit dwells within us, that if we look to you in faith, we repent and believe, we are filled with your very presence, that you are indeed directing our steps to the praise of your glory, that even when we can't see that you're working, we might know by your word and spirit that you are indeed with us. And that what we see now is not what will be. And who we are now is not what we will be for eternity. Because you are coming back, Jesus, to make all things new. So that every sad thing becomes untrue. And there's only glory forever and ever as we worship you around the throne. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.